This is Angela Benoit, host of the Continuing Education series, a podcast we produce as a benefit for the members of the French Language Division and those interested in becoming members. This series, provides, uh, this series strives to offer educational content about the craft of French to English and English to French translation and about our division. Jennifer Bader is joining me today to talk about privacy policies. Jennifer is a French to English translator specializing in corporate, legal, and securities documents. She is the owner of Class Translations and a former corporate attorney with bar admissions in Paris, New York, and Maryland. Together, we are going to talk about the differences found in privacy policies written by U.S. companies and privacy, privacy policies written by French companies. And instead of looking at translated text, we are going to see what we can learn from studying original text. Thanks for having me, Angela. It's a pleasure. So Jennifer, to get, us, to get us started, could you tell us a little bit about the main differences in privacy policy law um, in the U.S. and in France? Well, before we start, I'd like to give the obligatory disclaimer that nothing I say here should be considered legal advice. All right. Uh, I have not practiced law for several years, and privacy law was not my area of expertise when I did practice law. Okay. Um, with that out of the way, this is a fascinating area that is closely intertwined with what translators do. Our job is to facilitate the communication of information across national borders, and privacy issues are, are, are very important in that communication. Definitely. Uh, so the transfer and use of personal data is very highly regulated in France and ge more generally in the EU, in mm -hmm. the European Union. France was one of the first European countries, and in fact one of the first countries at all, to concern itself with privacy and data protection. Wow, okay. So the foundational law in France is the Loi du 6 janvier 1978 relative à l'informatique, aux fichiers et aux libertés. Mm -hmm. uh, and that law created the Commission Nationale de l'Informatique et des Libertés, or the CNIL. Okay. Um, the French law was actually part of the inspiration for the 1995 EU Data Protection Directive, And then in turn, uh, the French law was amended to comply with and transpose that directive into French law. Okay. Um, and data in the EU is also governed by the 2002 e-privacy directive, which aims to protect personal data in the telecommunications field, and in particular with respect to traffic data and location data, which includes cookies. Okay, cool. So first we'll talk a little bit about the 1995 directive. This directive applies to the automated processing of personal data. Um, data is considered personal if it relates to an identified or identifiable natural person, or in other words, a human being. Mm -hmm. Under this law, uh, personal data can be collected only under strict conditions and for a legitimate purpose. However, it should be noted that the directive does not apply to processing of data related to public security, defense, or criminal law. Okay. So first of all, the defined terms here in the directive are very important for French-English translators. In its English version, uh, the directive defines the obligations of uh, the data controller, which is essentially the company collecting the data, and the data processor, which is any subcontractor of the data controller. And then the person whose data is being collected is called the data subject. In the French version of the directive, uh, the data controller is called the responsable de traitement, Mm -hmm. The data processor is the sous-traitant, and the data subject is the personne concernée. Okay. 
So if you are translating from French to English, it could trip you up if you don't realize that these are actually defined terms under the directive. Okay. It would be very easy to automatically translate sous-traitant as subcontractor okay. and personne concernée as the person in question okay. if you don't know that these are actually legally defined terms. So that's something to watch out for. And you have to know that the... The directives, are, the directives are actually there and go and look for them. Right. It's always, yes, always good to know the directive. Once you have a directive out there, you're mm -hmm. often in a, in a great position. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because then you've got it in, you know, 14 languages, 25 languages. Oh, at least, anyway. yeah. Um, so substantively, the mm -hmm. EU directive requires the data controller to comply with various principles. Okay. Most, most importantly, the data subject has several rights. Uh, they have the right to access their, their data, to seek judici judicial remedy for violations, okay. um, and they have the right to object to certain data processing practices. Okay. Um, and the right to access their data includes, among other things, a right to know who the recipients are to whom uh, the data is being disclosed, and the right to obtain erasure or mm -hmm. blocking of data, uh, of which the processing does not comply with the directive. So lots of integrated um, protections in yeah. the European laws. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then in the other uh, directive, the other directive relating to privacy policies is the e-privacy directive of 2002, okay. uh, which regulates traffic data, uh, which in the French is données relatives au trafic, mm -hmm. and location data, which in the French is données de localisation, okay. um, as well as spam, cookies, and spyware. Okay. Um, and most relevant for this podcast is the regulation of cookies. Uh, that regulation provides that they may be installed only following explicit consent of the user, which is why mm -hmm. on... Um, French websites, you'll often see uh, uh, a little sticker up there that says you have to click to confirm that mm. you're okay with, with cookies. J'accepte, generally. Yeah. Voilà, j'accepte. <laughs> okay. um, I guess it's better than j'accuse. <laughs> True. But we won't get, we won't get literary. <laughs> okay, True, so <laughs> one of the trickiest aspects of these regulations is dealing with traffic outside of, of EU borders or actually outside of uh, European economic area borders. Mm -hmm. uh, many website owners in, uh, send their data abroad for processing and for storage mm -hmm. okay. to servers outside their borders. And data may not be sent to jurisdictions that don't offer protections as strong as those offered in the EU. And... Sadly, that would include the U.S. It does. <laughs> um, okay. So much for the EU. So the U.S. Um, here in the U.S., unlike in the EU, we do not have an overarching privacy law, federal mm -hmm. law. Okay. Um, on the federal level, there are various laws that protect individuals' data in specific sectors. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, most of the U.S. listeners of this podcast will be familiar with HIPAA, mm -hmm. which protects individually identifiable medical information. Mm -hmm. Uh, then there's FACTA, which is intended to protect, intended to protect credit information from <laughs> data theft, which as we all know is not always successful. Mm -hmm. And then there's COPPA, uh, which aims to protect the privacy of children under 13. Okay. Um, certain states also rec uh, regulate the collection of personal data, although that's very hard to do inside the context of the country at large. Okay. Um, but again, there's no mandatory overarching federal regulation of the collection, processing, or use okay. of personal data. Huge difference. Huge difference. Instead, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has published voluntary guidelines. Um, and this is in line with the general U.S. approach to regulation, which often relies on companies to self-regulate and relies on voluntary measures. Mm -hmm. And it favors disclosure over specific mandatory actions. In other words, you don't have to do something in particular, but you have to tell us what you're doing. Okay. Uh, so, for example, there's no mandatory provision on cookies that applies to every situation. Um, instead, companies that want to gain the trust of their customers 
will frequently use outside certifying bodies, such as Trust-E, mm -hmm. which is a company that provides privacy solutions uh, and certifies a company's privacy procedures to reassure the users of their websites that they're maintaining their customers' privacy. Mm -hmm. uh, furthermore, in the U.S., a data subject does not have the right to request his personal information from the data controller. Okay. So as a result of these differences, a French-to-English translator faced with a website privacy policy needs to be aware that that French policy will have a significant amount of EU boilerplate okay. um, that needs to be translated that would not be in a privacy policy that was originally drafted for a U.S. website. Okay, okay. But wasn't there a safe harbor policy for sharing data with the U.S., it seems to me? Um, what, what, what should we, how does this tie in with everything? <clears throat> well, it's obviously a problem um, if personal data cannot be sent back and forth between the U.S. and Europe. Because EU law prohibits sending data outside the EU to countries that don't ensure the same protections, mm -hmm. for the last 15 years, the European Commission has had a safe harbor program whereby European companies are permitted to send personal data to the U.S. if the company receiving the data self-certifies that it will comply with EU law. Okay. Um, a U.S. organization must comply with the seven safe harbor privacy principles, which cover the main areas of EU regulation. Okay. So without going into too much detail and putting our listeners to sleep, um, <laughs> at least our non-lawyer listeners, um, these principles relate to notice, choice, transfer to third parties, okay. access, security, data integrity, and enforcement. Okay. And I'm sorry I don't have a clever acronym for that. Oh, I wouldn't even be able to figure yeah. out what kind of acronym would sound like here. <laughs> it would be odd. It would be very okay. odd and long. <laughs> um, however, um, there is a little hitch that has come into this. Uh, mm -hmm. On October 6, 2015, while we were already planning this podcast, we were. the European Court of Justice declared that safe harbor invalid, partly based on concerns, concerns stemming from the NSA's surveillance program. Mm -hmm. So currently, the future of the safe harbor is uncertain. And mm -hmm. if you go to the U.S. government's uh, export.gov website, mm -hmm. the page um, that describes the safe harbor has posted, they just sort of slapped an advisory at the top of the page. <laughs> and it says, on October 6, 2015, the European Court of Justice issued a judgment declaring as invalid the European Commission's decision um, on the adequacy of pr the protection provided by the safe harbor, et cetera. Okay. And then they say, in the current rapidly changing environment, the Department of Commerce will continue to administer the safe harbor program, including processing submissions for self-certification to the state to the safe harbor framework. Okay. If you have questions, please contact the European Commission. Right. Not, right, not us, right? <laughs> the appropriate European National Data Protection Authority or legal counsel, which of course is what I always advise. Good plan. I would do that too. <laughs> if um, I were. <laughs> exactly. Always legal counsel. Yeah. What, especially if you're American. Mm -hmm. One last note um, on the safe harbor's difficult... Oh, that was... Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, that's okay. One last note on the safe harbor's difficulties. Um, even before the European Court of Justice decision... Um, the EU authorities were planning to review the safe harbor. Oh, okay. And it wasn't because they were concerned about the lack of care exercised by companies necessarily, although there's that too. Mm -hmm. um, it was really more concerns about the U.S. government, the NSA, snooping on people's data. So interesting. that's pretty interesting. Yeah, we'll have to see. And embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. We'll have to see how that goes. I, um, I kind of have a feeling that there are going to be lots of privacy policy updates coming um, the way of translators in... In the next few weeks. That may be. That may very well be. 
Now, in preparation for our podcast today, um, Jennifer and I studied two privacy policies, and uh, these two documents belong to two separate companies that are of the same industry, namely crowdfunding, but they come from both sides of the Atlantic. Indiegogo's privacy policy was written in the U.S., and my major company's privacy policy was written in France. Now, uh, for our listeners, we will provide the links to all of the texts discussed here today on the FLD website, so you can look them up. Jennifer, what is the first thing that jumped out at you when reading these two documents? Well, as you can see, or you will see when you get the link, if as you look at the My Major Company privacy policy, which is the French company. Mm-hmm. With um, an English name. <laughs> with an English name. Uh, it begins by stating that the company is fully committed to protecting the privacy of vid- visitors to its website. Okay. Um, in my opinion, this is a stronger promise than you're likely to see on a U.S. website because the less promised, uh, the less potential liability there may be, um, or at least so the company hopes. Mm-hmm. So my major company promises not to transfer personal information to third parties without the user's authorization, Mm -hmm. with certain exceptions provided for by law. It describes what it uses personal data for and why. Mm -hmm. It fully explains what cookies are and gives the user the opportunity to accept or refuse them. And of course, it informs users of their right of access to their own personal information and their right to modify or remove that information, citing the 1978 law that we talked about earlier. The CNIL, yeah. Um, as a reminder, um, this is not required uh, under U.S. law. Mm-hmm. And as an aside, this might be a good place to mention a translation question that comes up a lot, uh, at least it does in my translation practice, and mm-hmm. that is, how the heck do you translate <laughs> loi relative à l'informatique aux fichiers et aux libertés without sounding silly? Um, it's often translated as the law on computers, files, and freedoms or something similar, but it just... To me, it just sounds sort of goofy. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that my major company simply calls it the law on data protection. Okay. And I'm not sure how I feel about that because uh, you want to have the law clearly identifiable, but it's certainly an attractive solution. It, it is. Um, how would you generally translate loi relative à l'informatique aux fichiers et aux libertés? Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I have been 100% consistent in what I've chosen. Uh, it sort okay. of depends on the mood that strikes me. Um, <laughs> but I will say that I have a client that uh, I did something for recently who pr- that preferred uh, the law relating to IT, computer files, and civil liberties. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty good because you can at least see the connection. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you just say informatique fichier liberté or, or in English, you're not necessarily sure what the connection is between mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I like that one. That sounds, that sounds pretty good. Uh, okay. So anyway, back to the My Major Company privacy policy. Um, There is a section on the transfer of personal data in which the company explains that user data data may be transferred and stored outside the European economic area, um, uh, which, by the way, is the defining area for the the limit of what you're allowed to send outside of without uh, additional protections because uh, it's not just the EU. They have mm-hmm. agreements. They have agreements in place with those countries that are in the Euro- European Economic Area, but not the EU. Okay. Um, and they explain that the, that personal data might be processed by uh, either by my major company itself or by an outside service provider. Who is the sous-traitant? Right. We saw it would that be yes. In earlier. the language of the directive, the outside service provider is the sous-traitant in okay. French, um, and the data processor in the English. Um, And it warns users that the transmission of data by internet can never be totally secure. Mm -hmm. But overall, you can see that there's a strong focus on consent and on consumer protection. Consent and consumer protection, yeah, which is very different um, from the U.S., where we mentioned previously that liability is a bigger concern um, than 
pretty much warning. Um, oh goodness, <laughs> liability is a bigger concern than consumer protection on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, I think um, sort of in general, probably U.S. companies are more at the moment at least are more afraid of courts and European companies are more afraid of regulators, of okay. administrative authorities. Okay. Um, difference. As long as they're afraid of someone, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, so anyway, yes, uh, you know, um, one of the first things that I noticed about the Indiegogo privacy policy, the American mm-hmm. company's policy, was that it immediately notes that the company has been awarded the trustee uh, company's privacy seal. Right. Um, interesting though. Interestingly, though, it, it states that the trustee program covers only information collected through the website and not information collected through mobile devices, mobile applications, or third-party business affiliates of Indiegogo. Wow. That seems like a really big loophole to me. Yeah. Um, probably w- worthy of more investigation, but. In any case, third-party certification is more necessary in the U.S. than in the EU because in the EU, the legal requirements are stronger and companies have less to prove. Okay. Uh, So the trustee certification serves as kind of a substitute for government oversight. All right. Wow. Interesting. I had not noticed that discrepancy at all. Um, I guess self-certification has its limits. Um, and this would be something that a legal expert would pick up on, whereas translators aren't necessarily trained to see these things. Uh, what else can we say about this policy that would be useful for translators? Well, um, another thing we talked about before, the very next paragraph um, in the Indiegogo policy talks about the EU safe harbor, mm-hmm. which, as we discussed earlier, has become a bit of an open question. It has. Um, in any case, the policy states that Indiegogo has certified that it adheres to the safe harbor privacy principles Again, you'll be tested on this. Uh-oh. They are notice, oh, no. choice, onward transfer, security, data integrity, access, and enforcement. Okay. Um, but you will notice that it doesn't go into very much detail. They just sort of put up that notice, state that they're in compliance, and move on. All right. Another difference you'll notice between the French and English websites is that Indiegogo specifically mentions children's privacy. Okay. So remember we said that the U.S. has privacy laws in specific areas rather than one all-encompassing privacy law? And one of those areas is the protection of children under the age of 13. Okay. So Indiegogo has to specifically promise to remove information if they discover that they have inadvertently collected personal information from a child under 13. Because, for example, as we know, Facebook would never suspect that they have oh. users under the age of 13. Absolutely not. Um, and in any case, in, in, the U, in the EU, this would be a requirement for every user, not just oh, wow. for users under 13. Okay. All right. I see. Uh, so other than those differences, though, I think really the most remarkable thing about the two privacy policies is, in fact, how similar they actually are. Okay. Um, because of the safe harbor, because of outside certification, because of the international neighbor- nature of e-commerce, privacy policies between different countries have, um, have in, many, in many ways converged. Wow. Um, and in one way they've converged is in the language, the, the, the style of language used. Uh, it used to be that you know, the U.S. was strongly under the influence of the SEC's plain English rules okay. from public disclosure, um, in which you are supposed to be state things very, very clearly mm-hmm. so that the layman understands, layperson understands. Mm-hmm. Um, and France didn't used to do it so much that way. But you can see if you look at uh, if you if you look at, at my major company that they, mm-hmm. they they have they do follow those principles. They have, and it makes it easier to understand. Mm-hmm. It's very fascinating to see these differences and convergences coexist within these two documents, especially now that we know more about them. Um, now, in your opinion, Jennifer, is the role of a French to English translator to use a more descriptive tone, or conversely, is it the role of the English French translator? 
to add reassurance and protections to the text? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is that your role is to do, to, to be clear on what it is that your client wants you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know our topic today is to compare an English language privacy policy and a French language privacy policy, mm-hmm. but I do want to note that the the My Major Company uh, website, the French company's website, has on its website, uh, on the English version of its website, an English translation of its privacy policy. That's true, it does. And it's worth noting that that translation is exactly the same as the original. Um, They don't adapt it to a different audience, and it's a well-done translation, and it's not a bad example to look at if you are faced with translating a privacy policy. Okay. Um, So I think all of this leads to a few conclusions for, for translators. First, of course, be aware of what your client is asking you to do. Is it straight translation of a privacy policy? Or is it an adaptation for a different website audience? Um, I think this is particularly important for U.S. English to French translators, as a U.S. company needs to be aware of the additional requirements mm-hmm. of EU law. Definitely. And in, in some cases, I'd say maybe in all cases, if an adaptation is required, it would really be safer to ask a lawyer rather than a translator. Definitely. On the other hand, or a lawyer followed by a translator. <laughs> yes, both of them actually as a team. Exactly. Um, on the other hand, a straight translation is very doable, especially in the okay. French to English direction. Mm-hmm. Um, since the policies are really not so not so different. Okay. Wow. Very interesting. Uh, well, I guess this uh, has to conclude our episode for today. Um, thank you, Jennifer, for joining me. This was uh, amazingly interested. Uh, interesting. Oh my goodness. Um, this podcast is produced um, for, by the French language division of the American Translators Association, and uh, the, the the FLD really wants to thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, our uh, the current administrator of the FLD is uh, Yves Baudet, and our current assistant administrator is Jen Mercer. Uh, you can subscribe to the Continuing Education Series podcast on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash ETA-FLD um, to listen to today's episode. You can also find it on iTunes by searching for the words Continuing Education Series in the iTunes store. You can contact us at the FLD at the address divisionfld at atanet.org or you can visit our website at ata-divisions.org forward slash FLD in all caps. Um, only the FLD part in all caps, or you can get in touch with us on social media. This is Angela Benoit signing off. Thanks for listening and à bientôt.